This is Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Douglas Brinkley. Episode 3 starts after this. Back to the fact that you wrote your dissertation, but how did you physically get Yale to say, we'll publish it? Did you talk to somebody? Just sent them the manuscript, but it had a recommendation from a Yale professor, Gaddis Smith recommended to Yale Press that they look at it. He didn't have the power to say publish it, but he was a pretty big professor in my field. Do you remember how many copies they printed? I I would guess, I don't know, but let's say 10,000. Did you sell any? No, not much. I mean, the New York Times got, anytime you get a, a very, it was a glowing review in the New York Times, people buy off of that. So it, it, for a university press book, it got distributed, um, meaning in, you know, in those days, the borders of uh, the world, you know, they were, it was, so it got out there. I would see it in bookstores and was thrilled. Can you remember how you felt that time as you're getting published by Yale and you're getting reviewed in the New York Times? How big a deal was that? Unbelievable. And I, now I was hooked. I'm just going to keep going. Because I realized through the, the, diff, the, the epiphany I had I, when I was doing research on Atchison is the, um, I was staying in a, you know, renting a, renting a flat in, in New Haven, and I went to see the Grateful Dead in Bob Dylan in concert um, while I was researching, and it was so hot, and I got so bored and I had been waiting for a month for this concert. And my friends or people I went with were just drinking and partying. And I just realized I'm in New Haven and I've been slacking. I'm not working hard enough on my book. So I, next day I just got into a kind of, uh, um, I became a monk. I, all I did was focus on, I've got to get this done, that this is it. And I learned that it's a trade book writing. It's like being a bricklayer or a plumber. Like a historian is a tradesperson, and you have to learn your trade, uh, how properly to use footnotes, how to, how to um, you know, um, pivot, keep chronology going. Some of it's simple, but you've got to learn how to frame it. And uh, it, so that book was hard, but I framed it. It did well, and now I realize, wow, with that, I can do more uh, and better books. And so I started embarking on... Um, Driven Patriot, The Life and Times of James Forrestal, uh, who was our Secretary of Navy in World War II and America's first Secretary of Defense. You could see I'm working in the realm of Atchison Forrestal, the kind of foreign policy makers. That's what I was interested in, U.S. diplomatic history. I got to know Paul H. Nitza pretty well. Secretary of Navy? Yeah, I, I he was super kind to me. Uh, I'd go to the Cosmos Club and things. We'd talk. I did a, a, a conference on Dean Acheson, and he'd write the introduction for the book for me, and he would blurb my books. When and, did Acheson die? Um, Acheson died like 69. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Acheson died um, 71, I believe. So you didn't know him? No, he was left. No, I didn't know him. I might have that date wrong. He met Nixon in that period, though, in the Nixon years. Go back to as long as you've walked into the the writing thing uh, what have you developed as the way you go about writing i want to know the atmosphere you set up in do you go longhand computer speed 
who do you have, read it, all that kind of thing. Give us that background. It's all evolved some. I would just say with um, one of the misnomers that sort of surfaces online is that um, I've noticed that Stephen Ambrose was my mentor. He was not. I did not know Stephen Ambrose when I did my undergrad, master's, doctorate. Jules Davids was the person who helped me at Georgetown. And then a, a man named Townsend Hoops, who was undersecretary of the Air Force for Lyndon Johnson, was a Marine who fought at Iwo Jima. Who, uh, he won the Bancroft Prize for History for writing The Devil and John Foster Dulles. He wrote a Vietnam book called The Limits of Intervention that won every award you can imagine. He lived here in Chevy Chase, and we embarked as a team together to write the biography of Forrestal. And I learned a lot from uh, Townsend Hoops. Uh, He was from Duluth, Minnesota, and um, was quarterback of Yale football team. And he, he knew everybody. He later became head of the American Publishers Association. And we worked on Forrestal a lot. And he knew Forrestal's story very well because he had been in Air Force, you know, undersecretary of the Air Force. And he understood how the Pentagon uh, worked. And I didn't, but I got introduced to all sorts of people. His best friend, Hoops, was Zygmunt Brzezinski. And so I would go over for dinner with Brzezinski and Najib Halabib. And, you know, we would... Um, you know, talk about world affairs and all. It was a re- like a tutorial. Um, and I then got a job and taught for a year at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. Taught for a year. Year five, five. Uh, I had to do 10 classes. And I did Western Civilization. Five, just five, 10 total classes? Yeah. And in teaching early morning, they just used me as young, you know, to help. But, um, that was hard because I had to then learn Zola and uh, and you know Proust and things to put into these classes that I was doing on Western. And, and, and let me go back though: that you, do you teach every day, or did you just teach a total of ten classes? Uh, uh, no, no, I would teach all week long, regular. I, they, and, and, now I'm down to two as classes a semester. But this at, would be five classes a, a day? Semester. Uh, well, they miss some days, yeah, yeah but five a uh, semester. But go back to your habits of writing, the atmosphere in which you were writing. Where do you write? Um, I've written, I am unusual that I like music when I'm writing, um, particularly jazz, um, but I can venture in other things. Uh, I, it motivates me. Hearing the music gets me going, coffee, music. Uh, I tend to be a little restless, so if I have a you know a writing day, I will write at three different locations. Um, Give me an example. My where? desk, for some in Austin at your desk in your house. That's my starting point. Longhand uh, or computer? Um, mainly longhand um, to, for first drafting. So let's say longhand, but um, then I will go to a coffee shop that's not busy and sit and um, or a diner and sit and work for three hours just hog a booth and give a leave a big tip Um, and then I'll exercise and take some time off and then in the evenings I'll do another two or three hours so in the end it's I try to no matter what work eight nine hours a day on a book but where do you bring in your material all of your 
your the stuff you've researched. And each book's different, but I carry it in bags with me when I go to the diner. I I'm a I'm a cartoon character carrying like ten books into a diner. Uh, flipping them, you know, all around, carrying, you know, even on airplanes, it's like bags of bricks. I'm still bringing books. Uh, I don't like Kindle. Uh, I like the original books. And also, I'm often having to find really obscure books. Um, I used to get them from the, you know, libraries and rare bookstores, but nowadays I get some from Amazon because you can pick up anything quickly. Um, And it's, I guess, Brian, what you're asking, to me, my attitude is no pages equals a bad day. If I don't have some pages written, um, I, and so yesterday flying into Washington, I wrote on the airplane the whole way. I got into my hotel room and I did another two pages there. Who translates that to, uh, to computer? Well, this I, I do once it's on the computer, but once I do my original handwritten, either Anne or I Anne ha- is my wife, mm-hmm. uh, or somebody I have like an assistant right now, a woman named Anna, whose dad's a friend of mine who runs the Briscoe Center for American History at Texas. She's helping me through COVID, um, you know, and and you know, so I usually have somebody that can help me. Uh, actually now look things up on the internet um, that sometimes I can't find. I mean, I'm only basic, but there are ways. Uh, I once had a, um, a young guy work for me named Mark Davidson, who now runs Bob Dylan's archive. And Mark would wear a hoodie and was like an IT specialist. Mark could find anything. Any, it's unreal the skill set he had of locating if I said, I need to find uh, Albert Schweitzer gave a speech that's not recorded anywhere in, you know, Gabon, Africa, he suddenly um, will find it. Where does he live? He lives now in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is, he did his doctorate in musicology at University of California at Santa Cruz, and uh, he got hired by Bob Dylan's people um, to run Bob's archive and catalog. And he he's sort of has the skills of a curator at a major, you know, like he could be working at the Library of Congress. From time to time, not very often, but you'll see a story where they say Doug Brinkley has a team of writers that does all of his work for him. You want to deal with that one? I I'm, never have a team. I... Uh, it's myself and my wife and one person assisting me. The team thing might be when I ran the Eisenhower Center. I in was, New Orleans. In New Orleans, I was running a center. And so people, and this is when Steve Ambrose was getting big and also getting into trouble with plagiarism, Steve did. And I was there, too, being very prolific. And so there's a feeling like this. there's this team at the Eisenhower Center. And the same with Steve Ambrose. Steve would just do everything himself, and his son, Hugh Ambrose, would would help him some. Um, But I think just people, when you're productive, people are wondering, how can you be so productive? I don't hear that anymore. I think at a certain age, people get used to that's what you do. I mean, I'm doing a book every couple years. If anything, now, I haven't had a book out in a couple years. I'm getting the opposite. Like, well, what's going on? You know, (laughs) what's what's happened to you? You know, what's... uh, um, There are advantages and disadvantages of being prolific. Um, The 
advantages are here. I'm always, I never take a break from one book to the next. And to me, the questions I can never answer, like how long does it take? Like I'm writing right now um, a book called Silent Spring Revolution on John Kennedy, Rachel Carson, and the 60s environmental movement. Well, that book began when I long ago did my book, The Wilderness Warrior, on Theodore Roosevelt. And because I'm learning how the National Park Service worked. I'm learning how the U.S. Forest Service works. I'm learning what the Bureau of Biolo- you know, the Biological Survey is. I'm learning about the Audubon Society or the Wilderness Society or, you know, the um, Garden Club of America, on and on. I was learning about all of that, doing TR, and then I did FDR, Rightful Heritage, on the same theme, and a book on Alaska. So I'm doing all the research. So even though now my book's dealing with the 1960s, I'm doing all my research for the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, because if you're going to go to a Bancroft library at University of California, Berkeley, you might as well add a couple days in while you're there, plugged in, and research what you might be using down the line. And so, you know, I have boxes and boxes of conservation documents. I actually am a collector of things dealing with conservation in the United States. And so it's, I'm ready for the next one when I'm done with this one. Back to Georgetown for a minute. A master's and a PhD, big takeaway for you, best teacher besides a couple of the other teachers that you had there, impressions that were made on you because of Georgetown and being in Washington? Um, there was a man named um, Thomas Dodd, who was his brother was Christopher Dodd, the senator of Connecticut. Tom Dodd became ambassador to Costa Rica, and he was a Central American specialist. And I loved taking classes with him because he was a great storyteller, and he had been an ambassador down there. And uh, so I gravitated to him a lot. We became, uh, we had a, a friendship that developed. And I loved taking Central American classes with him. Uh, there was a, a great teacher I had named Walter LeCur, um, who would, you know, write about, um, I remember doing a paper for him, which I still don't have the answer to. Uh, which was whether John Brown is a hero or a terrorist. What's your instinct? <laughs> God, it's just sort of, you know, it's which way you uh, you look at it. Uh, it's, uh, you know, he had, was a very deranged man, John Brown, and uh, blood on his hands, murderous. And then you see the Harper's Ferry and, uh, and his bravery and uh, how it helped trigger the Civil War. And, uh, and then you, you see people that are, I admire Emerson and, Thoreau, in particular, backing John Brown, which makes you want to back John Brown, too. And uh, and yet, I, we're looking at where terrorism and modern terrorism, and yes, he, he was a terrorist. So, LeCur used to force an issue like that that had no easy answers on what it, you know, on world history, and it was intense. You've taught at Hofstra, Tulane, New Orleans University, and uh, he ended up at Rice. <clears throat> he also taught the Naval Academy. Um, what did you learn as you, through high school, through Georgetown, through Ohio State, about what a good teacher is? I never had to. I just believe in the term storytelling. 
I want people to lean forward and say, that's, a, you know, when I do a lecture, never to be bored. I, if there was one thing that would does ruffle me or would hurt me is if I feel I was boring. And I and it works for me because I I'm not going to be able to educate students on um, everything. I'm still learning things every day, but I can maybe get them to want to read books and get excited. I'm trying to get them excited. Like you're taking a class with me at any of these schools on presidential history. I want you to feel you know Washington or James Monroe a little bit or William McKinley or at least want to follow the presidency in your life, uh, reading op-ed pieces, maybe an occasional biography. I know presidents aren't going to be these students' lives, but I feel I make inroads that they get into it and it's fun for them. Um, and that's exciting for me. And because I come from uh, my, you know, my mom being a teacher, the teaching part's been easy for me in the sense of coming in and, and doing the lectures. Um, it's the writing part so so much harder. But I learned over time, Brian, that through publishers, good editors, you know, when you get feedback on this is, you know, my problem is tangential material. I turn in too long a manuscript, and the, an editor, you know, a guy, Trent Duffy, right now, but they've, you know, I've had different ones. A woman, Shelby Sadler, used to help me do this. Uh, like an ex, like, are you kidding me? Your, your subject is John F. Kennedy, and now you're going into the life story of Ted Sorensen, and then you're going the life story, and it be I, you start losing the narrative. So editors have helped me kind of keep it focused. Even with that said, a lot of my books are probably too long that I reject cutting things out because I always feel if I don't put those tangential characters in, they might get lost for history. I'm not, so I, it's, it's sort of, I'm doing it out of uh, actually what I think a noble cause, but I might be self-defeating myself by bringing so many characters into a given narrative that the reader might lose track of them. Douglas Brinkley is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.